This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, if you've not already, please open your Bible uh, with me to the end of Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 34 to 42 for our sermon titled, The Disruptive Way of Jesus. The Disruptive Way of Jesus. Today, we finish up our series, Signs and Wonders, considering again, like Pastor Ash and Alvin did the past two weeks, what the cost is of following Jesus and being sent by him. And to help us consider that today, I want us to start by asking the following question. The following question, what kind of societal disruption might be needed to bring about the true enduring peace for all people? What kind of societal disruption is needed to bring about true, enduring peace for all people? Or perhaps another way to ask this is what kind of disruption would need to occur for all people, particularly those in the margins of society, to experience true peace? How might that come about? Is it even possible for that to happen? Throughout history, I think that we have seen various figures who disrupted the status quo, who disrupted the way that things are in society in an attempt to see peace and justice come to all people. And one of those disruptors who's been of particular interest to me is a man by the name of John Perkins. And John Perkins' life serves as sort of an answer to our question. John Perkins was born in Mississippi in 1930 during the height of Jim Crow and the Great Depression. And as if that wasn't bad enough, from a young age, John's life was filled with death and trauma. You see, aside from being born into poverty, John grew up watching people in his community and family be murdered and live in fear simply because of the color of their skin. When John was nine, he watched as a young black man in his town accidentally hit a white man with his car. And after the young black man was put in jail, John recalls that white people came, took him out, tied him behind a car, and dragged him up and down the streets of the town on a Saturday afternoon until he was dead, which according to John was an act of chilling regularity on Saturdays in his hometown of New Hebron, Mississippi. And this wasn't all that John witnessed. Years later, when John was 16, his brother Clyde was home from fighting in World War II, and one night Clyde was standing in an alley near a theater with his girlfriend, when some kind of fight suddenly broke out from within the theater. And within minutes, police arrived on the scene, they saw Clyde in the alley, and they assumed that he was a culprit. And they proceeded to try and beat him. In self-defense, having done nothing wrong, Clyde pushed the officer off of him, which simply led the officer to take two steps back, pull out his revolver, and shoot him twice in the stomach. No ambulance came for Clyde. No investigation looked into what this officer did. Instead, like was all too common, a black man died on a Saturday in New Hebron, Mississippi, and those in power did not care. This is what John's early life was filled with. Story after story 
of injustice after injustice. And as John witnessed it all, he grew deeply, deeply angry. What's amazing, though, and what really drew me into John's story is that John didn't stay angry forever. That's crazy, right? He didn't stay angry forever. What happened was John became a Christian sometime after moving to California, and as he grew in his faith, he gained a deep love and concern not just for those like him, but especially for those who had done evil to him and the people in his community. In fact, John felt so convicted to help those back in his hometown of Mississippi, a place that he had fled out of fear for his own life, that he moved his family back there in order to share the good news of Jesus with them. Mind-blowing, right? And so after returning to Mississippi, John did exactly that. He got to work. And over the next few years, he and his wife did things like starting a Bible institute in their own town to share Jesus with other people like organizing voter registration so that black people could vote. And eventually, they even led a boycott on white-owned stores the week before Christmas in hopes that white people would learn the struggle of black people and perhaps offer them equality. Not surprisingly, though, John's work was noticed by people in power who were not happy with the disruption that he was causing. And so in 1970, John was ambushed and arrested by police in a neighboring town. And that night in jail, John describes as one of the worst nights of his entire life. John was beaten, he was tortured, he was humiliated, he was verbally abused, and he was told over and over again that he needed to quit doing his disruptive work. Finally, after a full night of being beaten and tortured, John's wife was able to come and get him out of prison, but shortly after being released from jail, John suffered a heart attack and had to have most of his stomach removed, both as a result of the torture that he endured that night, which took him months and months to recover from. And yet what's so amazing is that despite all of this, despite everything in John's life that he had endured and gone through, John's resolve to see justice and peace come for the people in his community only grew stronger. And in the years that followed, John continued his work, which gradually gained him national acclaim. He published multiple books. He was given eight honorary doctorate degrees. He befriended former KKK members as a symbol that real reconciliation is possible. He became a religious advisor to six U.S. presidents. He received countless awards for his work. And to this very day, in his 90s, he works tirelessly for peace and unity, not only in his community, but for all people who are hurting in our country and around the world. John was a disruptor who was transformed by the way of Jesus and chose to live as Jesus called him to, which led him to being a little disruptive in the present so that a greater peace could come for all people in the future led him to being a little disruptive in the present so that greater peace could come for all in the future. 
And as we come to our passage this morning here in Matthew's gospel, I think we get a glimpse of how someone like John Perkins could have been so influenced by Jesus to live the way that he did, and how it is precisely disruption like his, which is needed for all people, but especially the marginalized people in our world to experience peace. And so if you've been with us throughout this series, then you'll remember that a few weeks ago we saw earlier in chapter 10 that Jesus is in the process of sending his disciples to the Jews in order to invite them to participate again in God's grand story of bringing redemption and recreation to the world through his people. And yet as Jesus is preparing to send his disciples to invite the Jewish people back into relationship and participation with God, Jesus here in the passage we are in is warning his disciples about the conflict that may come as a result of their following him. And the reason for this warning is that Jesus knows that he is sending his followers to partner with him in disrupting the status quo, which he knows will result in conflict. And so Jesus wants to prepare his disciples to face that conflict so that they are not surprised when it comes and are instead able to endure. Now, I know that it can be difficult for us to imagine stories like this since we're, what, 2,000 or so years removed from this. And so to help us, if you could, Put your hands out in front of you like this. Just humor me, right? Put your hands out in front of you like this. What you have in your hands is what I have invented and called an imagination helmet. <laughs> you have an imagination helmet in your hands. And so I want you to put that on. Perfect. Looks beautiful. Ah, stunning. Very pretty. And I want you to imagine with me, that we are the disciples listening to Jesus here in Matthew 10. Can you do that? We're the disciples, we're listening to Jesus. And to start, we need to imagine ourselves in the Middle East about 2,000 years ago. It's a bit sandier than we're used to, and we have sandals on, and maybe if we're lucky, a nice linen tunic. And we've been following around this guy we met years ago named Jesus. And Jesus has invited us to travel around with him and learn from him. And for the past few weeks, we've heard Jesus say, and we've seen Jesus do some remarkable things that seem pretty unexplainable. Like, we saw him heal a person from leprosy. We heard him speak to a storm while we were in a rocky boat and make the storm stop. We saw him raise a dead girl back to life. Right? Basically, run-of-the-mill stuff. You know, no, incredible things. And so now we've stopped, and there's been crowds that have been gathering and following us around, and we've stopped, and we're kind of sitting on the side of a hill, and Jesus tells us that he wants to talk to us, just us. And at first, what Jesus tells us is awesome, because he's telling us that he's sending us to our friends and family members with the same power and authority that he himself has just been using so that we can invite them to follow him. Meaning, we are going to have the power to cast out demons, to raise people from the dead, to heal people of their illnesses, and do some amazing things. That sounds awesome, right? Awesome. And at first, that's how we feel. We're super excited about this opportunity and chance that we have to do something amazing. But then, 
Jesus gives us a catch. Gives us a catch. He says that while we are doing these amazing things, our friends and family members and neighbors are going to want to kill us and stop us from the work that we're doing because what we will be doing will disrupt their lives in a way that they aren't interested in. That's what's happening here. Okay, great job. You can take off your helmet, put it in your pocket, save it for later. I don't have a copyright on it, so you can give it to other people. So basically, though, what Jesus is saying is that he wants to make sure that the excitement his disciples have to do incredible things does not wear off when persecution comes. Because the reality is, anyone can be excited about disrupting and changing the world for the better, but it takes people, people like John Perkins, who have been so transformed by Jesus from within that when persecution comes, they are able to endure and continue living for Jesus even when life gets hard. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about as we come to this passage. And church, I think that just like Jesus' disciples were excited about being invited to partner with Jesus in his life-changing work, we too get excited to partner with God. But I think that at the same time, we often can lose sight of what God has called us to, or we can stop participating in the work he's invited us into because life gets hard. Life gets hard. And so as we are going through this passage this morning, it's important that we understand that Jesus is preparing us just as he prepared his disciples for the reality that conflict is likely to come when we follow the way of Jesus. And he wants us to be aware of this reality so that we won't lose heart when life gets hard, but instead we'll continue doing the disruptive work that he has invited us into. And so what we're going to see as we look at this passage, which is also our big idea, is that following the way of Jesus brings disruption, which leads to true peace. Following the way of Jesus brings disruption that leads to true peace, and Jesus wants his followers to be prepared of what may come so that they can endure to the end. And so to help us unpack this, we're going to answer three questions for the rest of our time. Three questions. First, what is the way of Jesus? Right? We're like, what is this? Why is it so disruptive? What is the way of Jesus? Second, what does it mean to then follow the way of Jesus? Like, what does that mean for the disciples' lives, for our lives, to follow the way of Jesus? And third, what does it then look like for us to participate in the way of Jesus today? What does that look like? Sound good? All right. So to start, let's look at the first question. What is the way of Jesus? What is the way of Jesus? And to answer this, I want you to look down with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 36, where we'll find the answer. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. For I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I am so glad my mom and mother-in-law are here. Um, 
So if we're trying to figure out, right, what is the way of Jesus based off of reading this verse alone, then I think we could probably say something like the way of Jesus is not peace, but a sword, and it's making members of your own household enemies. Sound like Jesus? No. Right. What in the world is happening here? We've got to figure out what is going on because it is confusing. If you were here last week, then you might recall that Pastor Ash actually offered us a method that is helpful for understanding confusing verses like these. Very helpful. Thank you, Ash. And that method is to read the confusing verses in the context of what came before and what comes after, and then to read those within the context of the Bible's grand story, within the whole theology of Scripture. And so basically, if we're going to understand this, we need to remind ourselves of what we have read in Matthew earlier on in order to make sense of what is being said now. And since what Jesus says here follows the rhetorical train of thought of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to earlier on, as well as what he does in the healing narratives of chapters 8 and 9 that we've just heard over the past couple of months, it will help us to recall then some of what Jesus said and did so we can make sense of these otherwise confusing verses. So, what we're going to do is this. I'm going to have us look briefly at two passages, one from the Sermon on the Mount and then one from the healing narratives, which will help us make sense of what Jesus says and will also help us to understand and answer what is the way of Jesus. And the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to read both of these passages for us uh, so we can have them in our mind up front, and then we will dissect each of them to see how they help us understand our current passage. So we're going to read both of these passages, and then we'll kind of dissect them. Sound good? Okay, so two passages. First one that we're going to look at is Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45a. Just that first half of 45. Matthew 5, 43 to 45a. Here, Jesus is in the midst of preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he says the following. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's the first one. Okay, keep that in mind. Follow along with me for our second passage. You can read on the screen. It's Matthew 8, 28 to 34. And Matthew writes, When he, Jesus, came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And so Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen were freaked out, and they fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Okay, so in the first passage we looked at, Jesus tells people, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And in the second passage, Jesus sends demons out of men into pigs, pigs drown, and this upsets the people of the town who then ask Jesus to leave. The question then is, how do these stories exactly help us understand why Jesus says his way is like a sword? Well, in both instances, what Jesus is doing is disrupting 
the status quo of society through unexpected and disruptive love. He's disrupting the status quo of society through unexpected and disruptive love. What do I mean by this? Well, in the first passage, Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, which he points out is in direct contrast to the wisdom of that day, which said, like we would probably expect, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That sounds more normal, yes. In other words, while the expected response to one's enemy is to hate them and want to kill them, Jesus says, love them and pray for them, which is diametrically opposed to what we would expect anyone to say or think, right? In other words, what Jesus is suggesting is crazy. And as you can imagine, it's probably not going to make people happy. And the reason this would make people upset is because Jesus is basically saying to the Jews, hey, I know you're under Roman oppression right now and that they're making your life pretty bad. You're not loving it. But don't hate them. And not only should you not hate them, you should actually pray for them, give them food if they need it, help them find a place to sleep, and love them as if they were a member of your own family. That sounds insane. It would almost be like if John Perkins went back to that police officer who killed his brother and said, Officer, I know we have our differences. I even know you killed my brother. But I just want you to know I love you. I am praying for you. I forgive you. And whatever you need, I'm here to help. That would be crazy. It's so crazy that it's even hard for our minds to imagine doing something like this. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is saying the people of God are to do. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But that's only the first thing. It gets a little crazy. In the second passage, Jesus comes upon men who are demon-possessed and he heals them by sending the demons into a nearby herd of pigs who then run into the water and drown. Now, to us, this really doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? It's like, okay, you lost some pigs. <laughs> Sorry. But the response of the townspeople should indicate to us that this is a much bigger deal because what they do is they run out of the town and they beg Jesus to get out of here. So what's going on there? Well, as we look closer, what we find is that the reason for the townspeople's anger is not that Jesus helped guys who were possessed, it's that their pigs drowned. And because the pigs were a major source of income and investment, the townspeople were furious because to them, the death of their pigs was essentially as if one of us lost $10,000, right? Something like that. And so what we see is that these people wanted nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus was more concerned with helping two possessed men be restored to wholeness than he was with ensuring the townspeople get to keep their investment. In other words, when Jesus displayed disruptive love, the townspeople begged him to leave because they preferred that life remain the way it is, wherein they keep their wealth while these men stay ostracized from community due to their possession of demons. And so what Jesus demonstrates is that if we want to follow his way, then we need to care more about loving people than loving our wealth. 
Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and love people more than you love your money and your wealth. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus did. And so if we consider then these examples and ask what is the way of Jesus, I think we start to see an answer. What we see is that the way of Jesus is self-emptying love which seeks the flourishing and redemption of all creation by disrupting everything that is evil and unjust. The way of Jesus is self-emptying love which seeks the flourishing and redemption of all creation by disrupting all that is evil and unjust. Like we saw, following the way of Jesus means loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, and it requires that we see people, love them, want them to flourish, and are willing to give up even our feelings of anger, vengeance, and hatred for their good. In the same way, following the way of Jesus means being willing to give up our money or our investments, or things that we love, if doing so will benefit the life of another person. And yet, just like we saw in these examples, this way of Jesus divides people because it reveals people's true motives. People can say all that they want, that they love people, they want justice and goodness for all, But the reality is that when it comes down to it and we have to decide between maintaining the status quo or giving of ourselves in some way to benefit another person, whether it's money or time or our forgiveness, we so often prefer to keep things the way that they are because the way things are has been fine for us, even if it might be terrible for others. And this is precisely what Jesus has in mind when he says, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword and to make a person's enemies those of his own household. What Jesus is here pointing out is that his way, the way for true peace for all people, wherein all people flourish and not one single person is poor or sick or marginalized, this way of Jesus is a way that cuts and divides like a sword because Jesus knows that when people love other people in an unexpected, disruptive way that seeks their ultimate good, something must be given up, and that giving up is something that many people do not want. So what is the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is self-emptying love which seeks the flourishing and redemption of all creation by disrupting all that is evil and unjust. That's the answer to our first question. Let's consider then our second question. What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? If the way of Jesus is self-emptying love that disrupts all that is evil and unjust, then what does it actually mean for us to follow his way? What does that look like? Well, as we consider this, we are going to see two implications of what it means to follow Jesus. Two implications of what it means to follow Jesus. And the first one is going to be found here in Matthew 10 in verses 37 to 39. You can follow along with me as I read these verses. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
like the verses before, what Jesus says here, it's not easy to receive, and it sounds just as confusing as the verses prior, and I think because in large part of the parallelism and circular nature of what's being said here, right? It sounds kind of like a proverb. And so I think it's again worth considering what does Jesus mean? What does he mean? If we use the same method we did before of considering both the surrounding context and where it fits within the broader theological context of the Bible, then I think the answer starts to present itself. And the reason for that is because if Jesus is saying that to follow him means to live a life of loving others that disrupts the way things are in society, then it stands to reason that we cannot live this way if we love anyone or anything else more than we love Jesus. For if we love other people or things more than we love Jesus, then what inevitably will happen is as things get hard as a result of our following Jesus, we will turn from the way of Jesus. We will stop loving others in a disruptive way, and we will turn back to the way things are, the easier things in our life. In other words, Jesus is saying that following his way is going to bring about conflict. The question is, how do we respond to that conflict? If the answer is that we fear the conflict or we fear what our parents or our children or our spouse or anyone else will think of us for following the way of Jesus, then what Jesus is saying is we're not following his way. In the same way, Jesus is saying that if we don't lay down our lives on behalf of others, if we don't take up our cross, We're not following his way. So with this in mind, I think we start to understand the first implication of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. For what we see is that following the way of Jesus means choosing to disruptively love other people even at the expense of our own relational security. Choosing to disruptively love other people even at the expense of our own relational security. Now, before we move on, I want to pause for a moment because I think that many of us might hear this and the first thing that we might feel is shame or condemnation or frustration because we struggle to love people well. And as a result, we might be fearing that we're not doing enough for God and then that must mean we're not saved, right? We might feel that way. And so I just want to assure you that that is not what is happening here. What Jesus is doing is speaking to people who are already his disciples, and he's saying to them that if they have faith in him, that he is the Son of God, then this is how they will live. Therefore, Jesus is saying to us also that if we believe that he has died as a propitiation for our sin, that he rose again to restore all that is broken, and that he's returning again to raise the dead to new life, then we will not fear what disruption following him brings to our relationships because we will have confidence in who he is and in what he promises. For if we believe that Jesus really did everything that this book says he did, then that means we can follow him and disruptively love other people even at the expense of things like our own relational security. Because even if we lose relationships, and face persecution, we can have confidence that our hope was not in those relationships in the first place, but was in the one who died and rose again and promises to be with us and raise us from the dead. 
So what is the first implication of what it means to follow Jesus? It means choosing to disruptively love other people even at the expense of our own relational security. That's the first thing it means. But that's not all that it means to follow the way of Jesus. Follow along with me as I read from verses 40 to 42 where we find the second implication of what it means to follow Jesus. Verses 40 to 42, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is a different way of saying what Paul says in his letter to the Galatians about being united with Christ. Jesus is saying that if anyone receives him and follows him, they then represent Jesus to anyone else that they interact with. Furthermore, anyone who receives Jesus and follows him not only represents him, but also receives the reward of Jesus, which is never-ending life. This is essentially what Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter 3, where he says that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just as Paul says that those who have faith in Christ are united with him and therefore receive everything that Christ receives, so too Jesus is saying if we have faith in him, we are united to him and will receive everything that he receives. What this means for us then, as we consider what it means to follow the way of Jesus, is that anyone who follows Jesus and disruptively loves other people can find comfort in knowing that they are united with Jesus. You find comfort in knowing you're united with Jesus. And the reason being united with Jesus is so comforting is because it means that no matter what conflict arises as a result of our disruptive love, we have the hope and assurance that this life is not all that there is because just as Jesus died and rose again, so too we will be raised to life after death. Therefore, We do not have to be afraid of losing relationships, of losing worldly status, or of losing our very lives because we know that just as Jesus faced conflict, lost relationships, was humiliated and died, he also rose from the dead to everlasting life and will do the same to us. Amen? Amen. So what are the two implications of what it means to follow the way of Jesus? First, it means that we can choose to disruptively love other people even at the expense of our own relational security. And second, it means that we can find comfort in knowing that we are united with Jesus in such a way that his rewards are also ours. Awesome. Having seen all of this, I want us to conclude by considering our final question. What does it look like for us to participate in this way of Jesus today? What does it look like for us to participate in the way of Jesus today? If the way of Jesus is self-emptying love, which seeks the flourishing and redemption of all creation by disrupting all that is evil and unjust, 
And if following this way of Jesus means that we can both choose to love others, even at the expense of relationships, and that we can find comfort in knowing that we are united with Jesus, if all that is true, then what does it look like for us to participate in that way of Jesus today? I think what's difficult about trying to answer this question is that just like Jesus' disciples, we want to do big, world-changing things for Jesus, right? And really, I think we get super excited about the idea that the things we do could be a part of bringing peace and flourishing to all people. I mean, who doesn't want to say that they're a part of that, right? We're a part of peace. But the issue with that is figuring out what that looks like tomorrow or the next day or on a random Wednesday morning. Does anyone else feel this, right? It's like, what, what am I supposed to do with that now? We want to do the big stuff, but the small stuff feels harder. And yet, church, I think that's exactly the point. Because what we have seen up to this point is that the call to love disruptively is a call to faithfulness and not a call to change the world all on our own. Sure, it's possible that some of us may have the opportunity to love disruptively on a greater scale and one day maybe even become someone like a John Perkins, but that should not be our primary concern. Our concern should be that we have been so transformed by the love of Jesus that we love others in ways the world doesn't expect, even and especially when doing so changes little, but is simply being faithful because God has been faithful to us. We aren't called to do good only when that goodness will clearly make a big impact in the world. We are called to do good and to love disruptively, even and especially when that goodness and love is seen by no one and changes little. And yet, and yet, I can only imagine how much more beautiful and wonderful and amazing our world would become if we all loved others in this way and had this mentality. Because this was the mentality that people like John Perkins had when they started. John didn't set out to change the world. He set out to love the people in the very community he grew up in, in small ways. And church, can you imagine what it would look like if we had that as our goal? Imagine if we simply started to see our enemies as people, and instead of hating them, we prayed for them and sought their good. Imagine if we considered how our actions could benefit our neighbors and people around us rather than treating them as a means to an end. Imagine if we saw oppression and instead of ignoring it, we spoke up about it. Imagine if we heard the cries of those in need and invited them into our homes and walked alongside of them. Imagine if we looked at every person and saw them as equally created in the image of God and equally worthy to participate in everything God has made them for. Imagine if we were willing to lay down our preferences for the sake of peace and unity. And imagine if we were open to giving everything that we have away if it meant the healing and flourishing of other human beings. Church, imagine what our world might look like if we lived this way. Imagine how much good that sort of disruptive love would lead to if we all did this even on the smallest of scales when no one is watching. Church, this is the way of Jesus. This is to what we are called. 
And if you're not sure what that looks like still, you can start as simply as doing something like coming out to the pantry in a couple of weeks, right? Having an opportunity to give of your time so that others can receive things that they don't already have but that they need desperately. Or you can start by inviting that person no one else wants to eat with to lunch and then keep inviting that person to lunch, right? Or start by noticing the lack of equity in your workplace and say something to someone who's in charge. Or you could even start by just asking yourself before you do something, is what I am doing for the benefit of this other person or is it simply for my gratification? There's no shortage of opportunities to disruptively love other people. We simply need to open our eyes and be willing to act in the ways we have seen and heard Jesus act. And church, whatever it is that the Spirit has been laying on you this morning to do, I just asked later when we fill out our info cards that if you feel comfortable doing so, you would just write down in that prayer request what it is that you decided to do so that we can be praying with you. Because you're not alone in doing this. We love disruptively together, and we want to be praying for that in each other. All right, so if we want to answer the question, if you remember it, that I asked all the way at the very beginning regarding what kind of societal disruption is needed so that all people, especially those who are marginalized, could experience true, enduring peace. The answer is following the disruptive way of Jesus. Following the disruptive way of Jesus. And yet the good news for us is that even when we fail to love disruptively as well as we should, which we're all going to do, right? There's lots of grace here with that. Even when we fail to do that, We can still trust in the one whose disruptive love conquered death and the grave and who is coming back again to right every wrong and institute never-ending peace for all people. We can trust in Jesus. But until that day comes, Jesus is inviting us to partner with him in bringing that about. And since Jesus will be with us as we love disruptively, we can trust that no matter what conflict arises, No matter what suffering we face, Jesus is with us and he will raise us to new life in such a way that not even death can hold us down. Loving disruptively for the good and flourishing of all because we have been so loved by God. That is what we are called to do. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.